This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. 1 John 1.9 simply states, if we confess our sins, which means to identify, to admit, or acknowledge our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood, then at the instant that we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a verse addressed to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and is our ability to recover from any sin after we're saved so that we can resume our Christian walk. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful freedoms that we have in this nation that we can gather together this morning to freely worship and study your word. Unfortunately, these freedoms are constantly under assault by many different elements within our society and within our culture, elements who are extremely hostile to the word of God, hostile to the absolutes of scripture, and hostile to everything that Christianity stands for. Father, we pray that you would continue to give our president and our leaders, especially those in the judiciary, uh, wisdom that many have so often lacked over the recent decades in order to see how they are making decisions that constantly erode our personal freedoms. We pray that you would preserve and protect these freedoms, that your word can go forth unhindered, that we might have uh, access to the truth of your word, understand the absolutes embedded in the scriptures, and that On that basis, we can have true freedom that we have historically had in this nation. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand what we study, see the implications of it in our own lives, and be able to adjust our thinking to the absolutes of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our study on the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Now, this is becoming such a focal point today in culture wars in America. One of the, uh, there are two things that have really brought this whole question to the foreground um, in terms of contemporary events. One is the bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, 
and its numerous false claims about uh, Jesus, his humanity, his uh, the fact that his deity really wasn't uh, wasn't claimed by him. The author of that book claims that the deity of Christ was something that was added by the church centuries later. Then there's the issue related to the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of Christ, which is supposed to open this week. Does anybody know if that's opening around here? It is? Well, it's amazing that somewhere east of the Hudson they're going to show something that has biblical truth in it. Anyhow, I mean, they never showed Luther. They never showed the Gospel of John or any of these other movies that have come out lately. So I encourage everyone to go see that. I think that is a, it's going to be a statement made in terms of just the box office from people that go to see such a movie that we, we're in a culture war. And there are people who just think that, that Christianity is irrelevant, marginalized, doesn't matter anymore. And I think just the dollars the movie takes in is going to say something. And also, I think from everything I've read, I think this is going to be a hot issue, a divisive issue, a culturally explosive issue. And if you want to know what's going on, you better see the movie. And then I think just for a third reason is from everything that I have read, including a review I read from Spiritual Counterfeits Project just this morning, this is a, this is a, movie that is biblically accurate, that what doctrine that is in the movie, because it is mostly a movie with a lot of images, but what doctrine that is presented in it is biblically accurate. Uh, Mary is not presented in some sort of uh, exalted Roman Catholic theological view. Uh, there are other elements that are not presented in terms of a mystical Roman Catholic view. So I think that it will be a very solid movie to see. There are certainly going to be some weaknesses, as there always are, in any kind of um, movie or film production. But I think from everything I've read, we can expect something that will uh, be quite moving, quite historically and biblically accurate, and only an, someone who is hostile to Christianity would ever claim that a film of this type was anti-Semitic. The Bible does not blame the Jews, meaning the racial heritage of Abraham, for the sacrifice of Jesus. It is uh, laid at the feet of the Romans, the Jewish religious leaders. We have to remember that there were probably thousands, uh, if not tens of thousands, of Jews that were Christians during the first century. And they were not uh, responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. So there is no anti-Semitism there. But these two cultural events, the book, The Da Vinci Code, the movie, The Passion of Christ, are going to be crucial and divisive in this era in terms of what they say about the person of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the reasons why I am taking the time to do this study on who is Jesus. And probably in the next week or two, as we get more into the hypostatic union and understanding the humanity and deity of Christ, I will probably include about a 20-minute book review 
and critique of the Da Vinci Code. I think that's important today uh, when you have a work of fiction that is that popular, that ha- that has uh, information in it that the author claims is historically accurate and factual material, and it's not, and it, it is specifically heretical material and contradicts the Bible and history, then people who don't know any better, people who are unbelievers, uh, people who are your friends and family members are going to read that book, and they're going to come away from it thinking that this is biblically accurate and sound, or historically accurate material, and they will challenge you. So we need to be prepared for those kinds of things. Now, as I said last time, we begin our focus on the first of two hinge doctrines upon which all of Christianity turns. These two hinge doctrines are, first of all, the virgin birth of Christ, and second, the resurrection. Now, in terms of basic Christology, which is the technical theological term for the study of the person and work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ comes under the category of the work of Christ and therefore is not really part of this study. However, probably week after next, we come to the one of the most important chapters in the Bible on the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we will be studying the resurrection of Christ in that context in our first hour on Sunday morning. The virgin birth, though, is not just some optional doctrine, just some kind of odd but nevertheless unnecessary doctrine in Christianity. It is crucial. Without the virgin birth, there is no Christianity. Without the virgin birth, there is no Savior. Without the, without the virgin birth, there is no salvation. The virgin birth is not optional. The virgin birth is central. The Bible will force you to take a position on the virgin birth. Is it true or is it not? And ever since the initial claims that Jesus Christ was born was actually conceived and born of a virgin, there has been uh, the response of unbelief. Truth always generates a hostile reaction. That is a principle. Truth will always, always generate a hostile reaction in the devil's world. So we see the first indication of this it, at the time of Christ, the Jewish reaction in John 8:41. John 8:41, uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees, "You are de- doing the deeds of your father." And in context, that was the devil. And so, in anger, doesn't say that in the text, but after he accused the religious leaders of Israel of doing the deeds of their father, the devil, they were not responding in gentleness and kindness. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have our one father, God. And so there is the accusation there. We were not born of fornication. So there is the implied accusation here that is a rejection of the virgin birth claim and that he was the child of 
not a virgin, but a woman who had been involved in some sort of immoral affair. Now, as we look at what the Bible teaches about the virgin birth, there are only two possible responses to this. Now, I want you to think through this logically. So this slide is going to outline the various options, but it's a logical development. This is the kind of thing that that you can utilize and think through on your own if you are talking to someone who is a uh, teachable individual but is somewhat concerned or questions how this could be. So we have the biblical claim of the virgin birth. Now, there's only two possible options. Either this is true or it's false. There's no other way to look at it. Either what the Bible says about the virgin birth is true or it's false. Now, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then once again you only have two options. Either his natural father was Joseph and he and Mary engaged in uh, premarital sex, and she ended up getting pregnant. And Joseph is the true father, but he is just, uh, he claims that he's not, or there's a cover up, or it's someone else. Once again, you only have those two options. It's either Joseph or it's someone else. And there is the claim among the Jews from the early first century that Mary had had an affair with a Roman soldier by the name of Pandera or Pantera. It's either spelled with a D or a T. In fact, a Talmudic scholar by the name of Herbert Danby claims up, uh, summarizes the, the claim in the Mishnah that a Yeshu, and that would be Jesus, a Yeshu called Natsuri, so son of Stata, or son of Pantera, was born out of wedlock. His mother was called Miriam, and then it really shows the confusion that uh, the Jews had. They, she was a woman's hairdresser, and see the Aramaic word for hairdresser as Magdla, which is similar to Magdalene. So there was the confusion of Mary Magdalene with Mary, with the word meaning a hairdresser, and her uh, that she gave birth to Jesus through a paramour, uh, a Roman soldier named Pantera. So this was a Jewish claim that it was someone else, and so the virgin birth was really something that was developed during the time of Christ's life to cover up her mother's infidelity. So you have two options. Either the virgin birth claim is true or it's false. If it's false, then that means he wasn't born of a virgin, so he was born just the same old way everybody else is, either through Joseph or someone else. Now, the false claim was either viewed as a contemporary fabrication. That means that this claim to be born of a virgin, was active during his own life. And we've seen that in in reference to the uh, Jewish response that he was born of a uh, really an affair with a Roman soldier. Or modern Gentile reaction claims that it was a later fabrication, that there was no real claim to a virgin conception and birth during the first century. This was just something that... Uh, followers of Jesus dreamed up 
by the end of the first century or into the second or third century, just to justify uh, later fabrications, later uh, legends that he was God. As Jesus grew in stature down through the uh, decades, they say, more and more legendary uh, ideas about his deity were added. Now, Jesus never claimed to be God, they say. Uh, this was not part of what took place. It was all added later. That is the, that is the view of standard religious liberalism. Now, we have to understand some of the foundation of standard religious liberalism, and so I want to remind you of the basic history. See, we have to understand how we got to where we are in terms of uh, Western culture. And I just want to trace this back as far as the Reformation. The Reformation, known technically as the Protestant Reformation because it was a protest against the theology, the works-oriented theology of the Roman Catholic Church, began in 1517 when a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 debating points, otherwise known as the 95 Theses, on the local bulletin board known as the church door of the church in his town of Wittenberg. At the same time that you have the Protestant Reformation taking place, and one other point, the thrust of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, in contrast to the Bible plus tradition of Roman Catholic theology, the Reformation emphasized sola scriptura. The Bible is our only and ultimate source of authority. And at the same time, you have a counter to this taking place in the culture of that time. And this is known as the era of the new birth. I always love the terminology. Otherwise known as the Renaissance. And the Renaissance is the devil's response to the Reformation. The Renaissance begins... Just as the Reformation didn't actually, well, technically it begins in 1517, but there's a lot of pre-Reformation activity such as the, um, such as the Hussites, the followers of John Huss in Bohemia and, uh, uh, John Wycliffe in England and his followers who were known as the Lollards. There was a lot of pre-Reformation activity that taught the truth of God's Word, but it really doesn't coalesce and kick off till 1517. The Renaissance begins in the middle 14th century, and it, instead of a return to the Bible, is a return to, uh, ancient, classic, Greek and Roman thought. So in the culture at large, you get this this reaction to the Reformation. Reformation goes back to the Bible for its source. The Renaissance goes back to classic paganism for its source. And in classic Greek thought, we have to remember that their their contribution to Western civilization is the idea that knowledge is possible without any reference to a deity that you can have knowledge of truth without any reference to a deity. Man on his own can come to a knowledge of absolute truth 
in the realm of creation without any reference to deity. And this leads to autonomy in the realm of knowledge. And this still plagues mankind down to the present. Either the Bible provides a framework for knowledge or it doesn't. If it doesn't, then it's limited, and frankly, you end up, if you go to the logical conclusion, then it's just another work of man, which is where this goes. So the Renaissance then led to the next movement, which is the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment elevated man's knowledge and ability to an even higher level, and unbelief came out in the open. And I always love what General Patton said. I love it when the enemy shoots at me. Then I know who he is and I can kill the bastard. And see, this is what happens in the Enlightenment is unbelief actually comes out in the open. See, the problem is you have a lot of people today in the church who really don't believe the Bible. But they they don't want to come out in the open. And you have people who want to blend you know, secularism and Christianity, that's what's known as liberalism, liberal theology, and they don't really want to come out in the open. And the problem is that deceives even intelligent, knowledgeable believers. For example, two weeks ago, was it two weeks ago? They had the segment on 60 Minutes. How many of you saw the segment on 60 Minutes where they interviewed Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice and and, and those, and a lot of you did. And notice the juxtaposition in that 60 Minutes interview. For those of you who didn't know, like my wife did not know who some of those men were, her impression was that, that you have this good old boy southern white net, male network. You had Tommy Ice and another pastor from Dallas, and then they had a, a, a couple of others. Of course, Gary Bauer, who they interviewed is from Maine, and, and Tim LaHaye's from Michigan, but they didn't make that uh, known or apparent. But you have these white males who take this conservative, fundamentalist, exclusivistic stand, an intolerant stand, according to modern man. How many times did Morley Safer ask them, do you really believe that this is the only way somebody can have a relationship with God? And I've got to hand it to to every one of those men, they all responded by saying, no, that's what the Bible says. That's not my opinion. I think Tommy did a fantastic job presenting the gospel and making it clear in that interview. But the person they juxtaposed to the conservatives who were all white, male, primarily southern guys was this black intellectual. Now, if you don't know anything about modern history, you get sucked in. That was Peter Gomez, who is the leading, flag-bearing, liberal theologian in America out of habit up here. And his closing statement, which I, I heard a couple of people comment, is, wasn't that good? Not if you know anything. Not if you listened. It was horrible. He says, I'd rather, in this self-righteous sanctimonious, looking down his nose tone, he says, I'll trust in Jesus, not the evangelicals. See, the Jesus he's trusting in isn't the biblical Jesus. It's what is called in scholarly academic circles the historical Jesus. 
And the historical Jesus isn't the biblical Jesus. Because, let's go back to our chart here, what happens in the Enlightenment is people start looking for the historical Jesus because they think that that um, that the biblical Jesus has just been all covered over with by later editions of legends and deification and mythology and all of this stuff. So we have to get rid of all this this uh, this mythology and legend stuff that's been added to to Jesus and get to the kernel. That was Boltmann's term. Get to the kernel, demythologize the scripture, and discover the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus didn't claim to be God. The historical Jesus didn't claim to be the only way to God. The historical Jesus just loved everybody, and that gives birth to this this Jesus. Uh, Society that has been gotten a lot of press over the last ten years that meets every few years a group of scholars the the Jesus scholars and they uh, they've gone through the gospels with their color coded pens they have five different colors I think and they color code each verse Jesus never said this Jesus probably didn't say this this you know, didn't happen. He might have said this, or this is what Jesus definitely said. And they try to decide uh, on the basis of their own arrogance and their own agenda what could, Jesus could have said and what he could have said. But they have an agenda here. They have this presupposition that they bring to the Bible that nothing supernatural could have happened. Jesus couldn't have been God. Therefore, there couldn't possibly be miracles. He couldn't have made certain statements. And all of this is colored by the fact that they have, they're operating on the presuppositions of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and 19th century liberalism. And the assumption there is basically that God can't and doesn't interact with human history, and he's never entered into human history. And therefore, miracles such as the virgin birth, the healings, walking on water, feeding the 4,000, feeding the 5,000. See, they would say those were contradictory accounts, and the gospel writers just couldn't figure out uh, what the accurate number was. Uh, they have no respect for the intelligence of the writers of Scripture of the early church. And my basic question to that has always been, well, if these guys were were trying to uh, put forth a fraud on everybody, you would think that they would be smart enough to realize when they were contradicting themselves and that they would, would recognize that on one page they were talking about 4,000 and on another page 5,000. So... Historical liberalism, uh, going back to the Enlightenment, has basically assumed that that Jesus could not have done any of the things that are said are claimed by the Bible, and so they reject the virgin birth, they reject the deity of Christ, and this has caused a tremendous division in our uh, culture today. And so people go back to what I said about the Greeks, that man can have knowledge about reality without ever consulting the gods. Remember that. Now, we see its direct descendant in a comment by a very well-known early 20th century liberal theologian. His name is Shaler Matthews, and he was the dean of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago during the period of this battle between liberals known as modernists 
and fundamentalists at the first part of the 20th century. And let me conclude this slide before we go on. The conclusion of the false view is that Jesus ends up being a human like everyone else. He's a human like everyone else. That means he can't die on the cross for your sins because he's a sinner too. And that's going to affect what? It's going to affect your view of the atonement. If Jesus is a human like everybody else, then he can't die as your substitute. Therefore, he can only die as your example. So if you reject the virgin birth claim, it's going to change your understanding of the atonement. And furthermore, it's going to, it's going to fit in with certain liberal views on, on who uh, Jesus Christ uh, is and who man is. The only alternative is that Jesus is the God-man that Scripture claims him to be. That Scripture is the God-man that Scripture claims him to be. Now, let's go back to where I was when I was talking about liberalism. This is a quote from Shaler Matthews. Shaler Matthews stated in 1930, the modernist starts with the assumption that scientists know more about nature and man than did the theologians who drew up the creeds and confessions. See, that's the direct ideological descendant of the ancient Greek position that man can come to knowledge of truth with a capital T without any information from the gods. He doesn't need revelation. Except the biblical position is that man, though he can come to lowercase t truth as a result of using uh, reason and experience, he really can't plug that into an overall understanding of life unless he has revelation. Let's take one example. Operating on the concept with a critique of empiricism. In the Garden of Eden, Adam could have come to all kinds of empirical truth about the garden. He could have analyzed the trees. He could have known exactly how many trees there were, what the number was. He could have identified their color. He could have identified various different shapes, that over here we've got a walnut tree, over there we've got a pecan tree, over here we have a mulberry tree, all kinds of different trees. He could have identified the different kinds of trees. He could have uh, tasted the fruit or nuts from many different trees, and he could have classified that. So he would have a lot of information from empiricism, lowercase truth, based in the garden. But if he ate from one tree, he was going to die. The only way he could know that there was one tree that was categorically different from all the other trees was if God spoke. Only on the basis of divine revelation could he ultimately have an accurate view of the trees in relationship to all of creation. He couldn't come to a knowledge of, about spiritual death and the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, on his own, on the basis of either empiricism or rationalism. So empiricism and rationalism are limited... And empirical data and rational data 
must ultimately come under the umbrella of revelation. And that is contradictory to modern man. Modern man says we don't need God telling us anything. We can figure it all out through either empiricism or rationalism, and revelation is not needed at all. And see, that is exactly the spirit embodied in the quote from Shaler Matthews. The modernist starts with the assumption that scientists know more about nature and man than did the theologians who drew up the creeds and confessions. Therefore, a scientist can tell you more about the nature of who you are as a person, and that means a psychologist or a psychiatrist than the Bible. So therefore, when you have a problem, let's go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Let's not go to the pastor. Let's not go sit in Bible class. Let's not study the Word of God because that only tells us about salvation and our spiritual life. And so what we've done is we've undercut the authority of Scripture and limited it. Once you start limiting Scripture to a so-called spiritual realm, you might as well take out your razor blade and cut it all up and run it through the shredder because you have emasculated the authority of Scripture. In response to Shaler Matthews' kind of thinking and the kind of thinking of a number of other uh, writers during the modernist liberal contro- modernist fundamentalist controversy, you had the response of one of the greatest evangelicals of the 19th century, a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. And Machen points out the real issue in this statement from his book, Christianity and Liberalism. Machen writes, The overwhelming majority of those who reject the virgin birth reject also the whole supernatural content of the New Testament. See, it's not just the virgin birth. It's all miracles, all healings, all supernatural events. The issue does not concern individual miracles, even so important a miracle as the virgin birth, he writes. It really concerns all miracles. And the question concerning all miracles is simply the question of the acceptance or rejection of the Savior that the New Testament presents. Ultimately, it always comes down to whether you're going to accept or reject Jesus Christ. And the unbeliever automatically is is rejecting the truth. This is the response of unbelief. He seeks to envelop the truth and redefine it. That's Romans 1, 18 to 21. So the presupposition here is one of anti-supernaturalism. That's what undergirds all religious liberalism. So I want to give you about seven points on the background here on understanding the, the presuppositions underlying the rejection of the virgin birth. First point. Their first assumption is that man has the ability to know truth apart from God. Man has the ability to know truth with a capital T apart from God. Human reason alone is able to discern truth. Now, embedded in that assumption is the assumption that man hasn't been affected by sin. So the Bible teaches that even your cognitive processes have been affected by sin. But the presupposition of the liberal is that not even our cognitive process has been affected by sin. In fact, they're going to reject sin altogether. Man has the ability to know and to, to come to understand all truth. 
This is based on a further assumption, point number two, that the world evolved to the point that it is from the principle of time plus chance. So you start off with the assumption that man can know knowledge. This is why I beat this drum so much is how you know what you know is the biggest debate in, issue in society today. The next point is that according to their view, man and, and the world as it is is the result of time plus chance. This is the fundamental principle of evolution, and we have studied that quite a bit in our Wednesday night series as we've gone through Genesis, that the world evolved on the basis of time plus chance. This means, point number three, this means that everything in creation, everything is normal. Everything is normal. Everything. Evil is normal. Suffering is normal. Famine is normal. War is normal. No liberal has the right to say anything is wrong about war. Look at the Democrats. You know, on the one hand, they want to run God out of the schools, and on the other hand, they want to say that, that there's a problem with going to war in Iraq. If survival of the fittest is true, then we ought to be glad there's war because it's just getting rid of the unfit. It's cleansing the gene pool. Hitler saw it that way. That was the normal, natural consequence of, of Darwinism. Liberal, uh, 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 Hitler and Nazism was, saw clearly what the implications of a Darwinian worldview was. Everything is normal then. If everything just, just evolved the way it is, then there's no basis for saying that sin, suffering, famine, war, any kind of evil, death is wrong. It's normal. That's the way life is. That's all part of the process of advance. So in a liberal view, everything becomes normal. Therefore, point number four, there is no need for them to have a category called sin. If everything is normal, then nothing is sinful. It's normal. The implication of that is you can no longer adjudicate in the re- on the basis of morality. Now, that's different from saying that you're legislating morality. But all adjudication is based on an ethical system. All legal principles are based on ethics. That is the idea that some things are right in an absolute way and some things are wrong in an absolute way. And so the natural consequence of this kind of thinking is that any thinking in terms of moral absolutes or ethical absolutes breaks down. That's why we're having the culture wars that we're having today, battles over the death penalty, battles over sodomites getting married. You have to have absolutes. That doesn't mean that the, that the people are, are um, that you treat people who have certain sinful propensities 
in a harsh way. We all are sinners. Every one of us has propensities one way or the other. Homosexuality is just the weakness of the sin nature that some people have. Others have other sin nature problems. But you don't justify people's sin sin nature problems. Okay, let's come along and say it's no longer bad to commit slander. It's no longer wrong to commit libel. What would happen in this country legally if we made those kinds of decisions? It's no longer wrong to commit murder. You just end up validating every category of sin. And this is where it goes, because if everything came from time plus chance, then everything is normal. That's just the way it is, folks. And if everything is normal, then there's no need to have sin. And if there's no need to have sin, then there is no need for a Savior. Man doesn't need a Savior because he, he, there's no problem to save him from. And he certainly doesn't need a spiritually pure Savior. This is the thrust of the virgin birth, is it gives man a Savior who is untainted by a sin nature or Adam's original sin. So there's no need for a Savior and no need for a spiritually pure Messiah. Therefore, you can dump the virgin birth. Sixth point, based on this liberal assumption, is there would therefore be no need for a spiritual substitute. No need for the spiritually substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Instead of a substitutionary atonement now, you just have a Savior who just died to give us an example of how to love each other. So now we just go around and emote and love each other, and we don't have a solution to sin because there's there's no sin. The next step is if there's no need for a Savior, there's no need for evangelism. Because frankly, in evangelism, what you're telling people is you're spiritually dead because of sin and you need a Savior. Oh, that's got to be the worst form of hate speech. And mark my words, where we're headed in this culture is to define anything that a Christian says that is exclusivistic as hate speech. And we're all going to be in prison together. There will be a lot of evangelism going on in prison. I figure most pastors in this country are going to be in prison in another 10 years. That is, if they believe the Bible and if they believe that murder is a sin, homosexuality is a sin, adultery is a sin. If you believe in these things are sins, you're going to be in prison because modern man has rejected the notion of sin and personal accountability. We're just all victims. We're just all victims. It's somebody else's fault. We're not responsible anymore. All of this flows from the presupposition of liberalism. So that takes, takes us through the response of unbelief. Why is, why does Christianity put such an emphasis on the virgin birth? Why is this important? Let me give you three reasons for the necessity of the virgin birth. First of all, the virgin birth is necessary in order to fulfill prophecy. The virgin birth is necessary in order to fulfill 
prophecy. The Old Testament prophesies that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Not only do we have the the key prophecy in Isaiah 7:14, but we also have other passages that emphasize the significance of fulfilled prophecy, such as Isaiah 41:22 to 23. Isaiah 41:22 to 23, where we read. Let's begin in verse 21. God is challenging the false gods, the idols of Israel. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. In other words, you want to believe in this human viewpoint system, whatever it is, whatever the form of idolatry. Maybe it's the kind of idolatry you had in the ancient world where you have idols of wood, stone, and uh, constructed by human uh, craftsmen. Or maybe it's the more sophisticated idols of mental arrogance like we have in our own society. You believe in this? You believe in postmodernism? You believe in the, the uh, rationalism of, of modern man? Well, set forth your case. Demonstrate the validity of your system. God says, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. In other words, let them foretell the future. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us the things to come. In other words, the Bible has clear empirical data that demonstrates and validates what it says. There is predictive prophecy in the Bible. This is why liberalism comes along and tries to, to do away with the Bible and say that Daniel wasn't really written in the 6th century B.C., if it was written then, then you have predictive prophecy. If the Bible was written in the 2nd century B.C., then it's history. So you do away with the supernatural element. But the Scriptures clearly have predictive prophecy again and again and again. In verse 23, Isaiah 41, 23, God says, Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good and do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. In other words, God issues a challenge to these systems of unbelief that see if you can predict the future as the Bible predicts the future. The Bible clearly validates itself. Then in John 14, 29, Jesus says, And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Jesus prophesied his own death and the manner of his death. So the virgin birth fulfilled prophecy. That's the first reason. The second reason is that the virgin birth was designed to bring a Savior who would be morally pure, a Savior who was morally pure, somewhat a Savior who was free from the stain of sin, a Savior who would not have a sin nature. This point deals with the fact that there would be no inherent sin nature in the Savior. This was necessary because the sin nature, according to the Scripture, is passed down through the male, not through the woman. So by a virgin birth and the non-involvement of a male, there was no passing on of the physical sin nature from Joseph to Jesus. That was blocked. So there is no inherent sin nature. Remember, it was in Adam that all die. 
Uh, Romans, a key passage for this is Romans 5, 12 through 14. And then the third reason is so that the Savior would be legally pure. That means no, uh, no imputed sin. So he is born of a virgin to be morally pure, no inherent sin nature, and to be legally pure, that is legal before the throne of God, no imputed sin, because there was no inherent sin nature, there was no uh, home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. So Jesus is born sinless. He can, uh, this enables him to go to the cross and die for us. A Savior who was also under the condemnation of sin, a Savior who was also uh, guilty of Adam's original sin could not die for mankind. He could only pay for his own uh, for his own sin. So there are three reasons that demand a virgin birth: one, the fulfillment of prophecy; two, to be morally pure—that is, no inherent sin nature—and third, to be legally pure, pure, no imputed sin nature. And then there are. I have 12 things that were accomplished, 12 things that were uh, accomplished by the virgin birth. First of all, the incarnation was conditioned by human sin. It was necessary because of human sin, and that sin had to be paid for by a man. So the first reason for the incarnation through virgin birth was in order that the Savior could pay the penalty for sin. Luke 19.10 states, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He had to be a man in order to pay the penalty. Second reason for the incarnation. The incarnation revealed God to man in terms of a human frame of reference. And the point here is simple. If Jesus isn't God, and he claimed to reveal God to us, then we don't know God. If Jesus isn't God, then we don't know God. The incarnation revealed God to man in terms of a human frame of reference. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. He has explained him. Also look at Matthew 11:27 and Matthew 14:9. The third reason for the incarnation is that the incarnation provides an example for living. Now the problem with this point is that liberals come along and make this the only reason for Jesus is he shows us how to live. It's true he does. That's not the purpose for his life. His purpose primarily was to seek and to save that which was lost, to go to the cross and die for our sins. But he accomplished numerous goals in the incarnation as well, one of which is that he provided an example for living, 1 Peter 2.21 and 1 John 2.6. His life provides an example for us in how we are to live the spiritual life. Fourth point. The incarnation provides a spiritual substitutionary death for sin. The incarnation provides a spiritual substitutionary death for sin. 
Hebrews 2.9, Hebrews 10, 1-10, and 1 John 3.5. The incarnation provides a spiritual substitutionary death for sin. This is the essence of the atonement. Jesus Christ dies as a substitute for us. He dies in our place. He pays the penalty for us so that we do not have to pay that penalty ourselves. It is paid in full. The last word of Christ on the cross, tetelestai, indicates that it is completed. Fifth reason for the incarnation, it was necessary to destroy the works of the devil. This goes back to Genesis 3.15, when God prophesied the coming of a deliverer in the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15. He said that the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman on the heel, but the seed of the woman would destroy him, would give him a head wound, a fatal wound. So the incarnation was necessary to destroy the works of the devil. Genesis 3.15, John 12.31, John 16.11, Colossians 2.15, Hebrews 2.14, and 1 John 3.8. So the incarnation destroys, this is Jesus Christ's strategic defeat of the devil in the angelic conflict. Sixth point, the incarnation enables Jesus to be a merciful high priest. As a priest, he represents us. He has gone through all of the testing, all the suffering, same categories we have, yet without sin. This enables him to be a sympathetic or merciful high priest. The entire book of Hebrews emphasizes this, especially in Hebrews 2, 17 to 18, Hebrews 5, 1 to 2, Hebrews 8, 1, Hebrews 9, 1 through 12, and Hebrews 9, 14. So the incarnation enables Jesus to be a merciful high priest because he has lived his life as a human being, solving the problems of his human life by dependence upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So he then is qualified to be our high priest and a merciful high priest. The seventh reason for the incarnation is it fulfills the Davidic covenant and the promise of a son to date to sit upon the throne of David. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and following. The incarnation fulfills the Davidic covenant and the promise of a son to sit upon the throne of David. The Davidic covenant promised to David an eternal dynasty. This is brought out in the New Testament in Luke 1:31 to 33 and Luke 1, 68 to 70. The eighth point, the incarnation confirms the promises of God. This is parallel to my point earlier that it was necessary to fulfill prophecy. The incarnation confirms the promises of God, such as a good passage for this is Romans 15, 8 through 9. The incarnation confirms the promises of God. Over a hundred prophecies were made about the coming of Messiah in the first advent in the Old Testament, all literally fulfilled by Jesus Christ at the first coming. The ninth point, the incarnation is necessary to fulfill the purpose of mankind and to glorify humanity because Jesus Christ lives his life as a man in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He never relies upon his deity to solve his problems. Then... He is exalted at the ascension 
and glorified, according to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. This fulfills the purpose of mankind and glorifies humanity. Tenth point. The incarnation made it possible for Jesus, the perfect son of Adam, to fulfill the destiny of Adam to execute dominion over the earth. He will rule the earth. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Man was created to rule the earth. He lost that position when he sinned. Uh, in Jesus Christ, man will be able to full, fulfill his original cre- created destiny and have dominion over the earth. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Eleventh point, the incarnation allows Jesus to bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2, 10 through 11. Through the incarnation, he will bring many sons to glory. There will be millions of human beings who are saved and brought to glory because of his death on the the cross. And then finally, point number 12, it will, the incarnation delivers us from the fear of death according to Hebrews 2.15. The incarnation delivers us from the fear of death, Hebrews 2.15. Now, what we have done in the last two weeks is to focus on the importance of the incarnation and the virgin birth. Last time we looked at the, the genealogy record, how that demonstrates that Jesus had to be the born of a virgin. This time we have looked at the response to the virgin birth from liberalism, and we have seen that it is based upon an agenda that is hostile to Christianity, and we have looked at the importance and necessity of the virgin birth. And next time we will come back and begin to explore what the Bible teaches about this union of the deity of Christ with his humanity. What does it mean that Jesus is the God-man, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to come to a greater appreciation and understanding of who our Savior is, that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity who became flesh and dwelt among us, that the purpose for this incarnation was to go to the cross where he died as our spiritual substitute, paying the penalty of spiritual death for us so that we could have a salvation based upon grace and not on works. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need do is simply trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of uh, reforming your life. It's not a matter of being involved in religious ritual. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin you will ever commit. That makes it possible for you to have a salvation where you do nothing except simply accept it as a free gift, to believe that he died on the cross as your substitute. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.